Welcome to Brandon Nevat. We are joined by David Benatar, one of our favorite guests who we've recorded two episodes with in the past. And we're going to be talking about his latest book, which is about the fall of the University of Cape Town. Uh, I was a student at the University of Cape Town, and the book is an incredible read and an incredibly horrifying read to find out what's happened at Africa's greatest university. Professor Benatar will be telling us about some of the stories that have occurred um, over the last six years or so. Would you like to start with one? I should probably start at what I take to be the beginning of this saga, which was the protests against the Cecil John Rhodes statue on campus and what ensued. I do indicate in the book that I think there were seeds of the problem that can be found earlier in UCT's history, but it does seem to me that the protests around that statue were a turning point in UCT's history. I was actually overseas on sabbatical at the time, and so I saw this from a distance. But I had a pretty instant sense of what this was going to suggest for the future of UCT or what it would likely suggest for the future of UCT. So what happened was that a, a student at the university, an undergraduate who had actually been an undergraduate for quite a number of years, a strew human excrement around the statue. He'd clearly invited the media to be present for this event. And this launched the Rhodes Fall protest, seeking the removal of the statue from its quite central place on the campus. And there was clearly an expedited process which led to the removal of the statue within a month. And that brought some quiet to campus, but not for long, because quickly in the wake of that, the fees must fall protests began, not, in, not at UCT, but soon spread to UCT. And the university just capitulated to these protests, uh, which of course just produced more protests in uh, the, the following years. I should say, of course, that I'm not in the least opposed to protests. Protests are an important part of democratic activity. But what happened at UCT went beyond legal and appropriate protest. It turned into criminality. The criminality was not manifest at the time of the roads must fall, but it did manifest in the fees must fall segment of the of the story. I did have concerns about how quickly the statue was removed. I don't think that it was unreasonable to raise questions about the removal of the statute, but I think that it's a process that should have been done in a far more deliberative way and without response to the feeling that you were going to meet, be met with violence if you didn't remove it. So I would have liked to have seen a more rational deliberation about the removal of the statute. Perhaps I could say a little bit more about this general phenomenon. It's not one that I've thought about in, in great detail. I, I do think that there are certain people that ought not to be honored with statues and with buildings named after them. But I also think that if we raise the bar too high and require people to be perfect before we memorialize them in these ways, we wouldn't have statues to anybody and we wouldn't have buildings named after anybody. So what we need are a set of principles guiding when we would uh, remove statues, remove building names, change building names, and when we wouldn't. And those principles obviously have to be consistently applied. And it's really not clear to me that we have a consistent set of principles. So the issue isn't so much that if after careful deliberation, we would have decided that that statue should be removed, that wasn't the issue. The issue is that that careful process of deliberation didn't happen, which spurred even further rushed consequences, which spurred ultimate violence. Correct. Yes. I think that the university was acting under a perception of threat rather than acting on the basis of an appropriate process of deliberation. In the book, you talk about other things that were targeted. So UCT has this incredible art collection. And one of the 
the works of art when I was there that was most prized in the collection was this uh, statue of Saki Bartman, who was uh, a Khoisan South African, and the piece had been made out of uh, used metal by a very prominent uh, black South African artist, Billy Bester. And the students were upset by the statue and demanded that it be covered up basically in a burqa. And it took an American librarian to eventually say, you know, is this the way the statue is supposed to be? Why is this being covered? And, you know, removed uh, the statue's clothes. And this was described, I think, by some students as a, a violation of the integrity of the statue because she had been, you know, removed of her clothes. Of course, Billy Best had never designed it that way. But there was this big attack on works of art and on and anything that people found to be offensive. Can you tell us some more of the details of that? Yes. Look, there was a complete onslaught on art of all kinds at UCT. That was one example, the covering up of the Sarki Bartman statue, to which the artist, Billy Bester, objected repeatedly. But there were many other examples. So as part of the Fees Must Fall protests, uh, artworks, historic artworks were, were burnt, literally burnt on the campus by, by protesters. And these included, ironically, paintings done by a South African artist, including ones about academic freedom in, in South Africa. And then there were calls to cover up and remove an array of other artworks on, on campus. And there was a theoretical story told about, about why certain artworks should be removed and why other ones should be put in place. And part of that narrative was that the artwork sort of reflected a demeaning status for, for black South Africans. But this argument was sort of incompatible with the actual artworks that were removed. For example, there was a, a photograph of Nelson Mandela sitting with his feet up in his plush living room, it looked like, reading the newspaper. And somehow this fell victim to the, the, uh, the censorship. And there was a photograph taken of the first black female vice chancellor at the University of Cape Town, and this picture was removed. So. There was a clear disjunct between the theoretical account of what needed to be removed and then what was actually removed. Uh, and of course, this was very disturbing to, to many people. There were uh, artists like David Goldblatt who uh, removed the collections they'd given to UCT or loaned to UCT and taken them elsewhere. And then there were other artists that wished they could do that, but they no longer had control over their artworks because the, these had been sold to others and were on loan to UCT. Those who defended the Roads Must Fall movement and the Fees Must Fall movement, they took exception to the view that there was a single movement. So the argument was, well, yes, certain students did certain extreme things, but they're not the core of the movement. So although certain art was burnt down and although certain statues were removed, it's not the case that the whole movement or the core of the movement espoused that that should happen. So they try to distance themselves from some of the more extreme acts that happened and say, there's not a single social phenomenon happening here, but insofar as there is, it's not the most extreme actions that, that are responsible for it. I'd be surprised if there were not these different strands within the movement, but I was not hearing anything public from those elements of the movement that were opposed to the violence. Of course, as I say, there was no violence, as far as I know, in the Rhodes Misfall era, and there was a lot of public sympathy for the protesters at that point. But the, the sympathy began to fall off quite rapidly with the introduction of things like arson and intimidation and assault. And I didn't hear anybody from within that movement or their allies 
objecting to this in anything other than a very wishy-washy, watered-down way. It'd be sort of a very general statement about how, while we don't support uh, violence, we do. And then they'll give the excuse for uh, for uh, the, the people who were doing the things that they were doing. So you mentioned that you had this total onslaught from the students, and there was an incredibly sympathetic vice-chancellor in the form of Max Price who publicly at fundraising meetings said that they had adopted a policy of appeasement because they thought this was a good idea so that they could, you know, try and save the academic year. Can you give us an insight into how those in the you know, UCT faculty dealt with the situation and whether they dealt with it correctly? Well, the university administration was in capitulation mode and I did object to that at the time. There were a vocal group of academics who were supporting the students in all kinds of ways and enabling them, the, the student protesters enabling them. But I suspect that there was a silent majority uh, who were cowering, as has been the case for years now at UCT. It's, it sort of set a tone where people would be cowering and not speaking up in fear, just out of fear they, they wouldn't speak up. I did at one point call, and I think others did as well call for a polling of the university to see what most students and what most academics and what most administrators at the lower levels actually wanted. And the senior leadership of the university just consistently refused to do any of that kind of polling. So they were capitulating essentially without a mandate from the university. When I say the university, I mean the, all the members of the university. From what I recall, I think at... University of Witwatersrand, a poll was conducted about whether they should go back to class after their route of process. And I think it was overwhelmingly the case that the students wanted to be back studying. But one thing about South Africa that's maybe a bit different from American universities is that we have some incredibly poor students whose parents, you know, scrimp and save for years so that they can have a better life. And a lot of those students were the ones who were held hostage by a kind of bourgeois set of students who could perfectly afford not to be on campus because they had their own computers. And I think when they started polling those poor students, they said, we want to be there. We want it. We want an access to a real education. Well, first you correct that it was handled very differently at other universities and at the University of the Vatvajstrat, there was such a poll and it did find as you suggest. And that sort of heightened the, the anger among many of us that at UCT, something similar was not done. I do think that the poorest students would have suffered the most. Uh, not all of them, of course, are having their fees paid by their parents. Some are having fees paid by, uh, by others, uh, some by the state, and some are getting some kinds of financial support. Uh, but I think all students suffered one way or another. In inevitably, the poorest and least prepared students are going to suffer the most. Uh, but everybody, I think, suffered uh, from, that, uh, from those closures. You and Mark both talked about the culture of capitulation at UCT. What, what did that involve? In what way did they capitulate? Well, for one thing, they kept drawing red lines and then the, the protesters, perhaps protesters is too weak a word because as I say, said earlier, protesting could be entirely legal, but the, the criminal protesters would cross over that red line and then the university authorities would just draw another red line and the, the criminal protesters would just uh, step over that line. Sometimes court interdicts were brought against the protesters, but then they would be withdrawn. Uh, so there were a whole array of things that they did, and then just entertaining the the demands that they that they were that were being made. Can you tell us about some of those demands? I gather there was a set which were about the reduction of fees, and I think some people felt sympathetic to the idea that university fees had escalated quite a lot over the years, and some of it seemed to be ideological that they wanted 
changes to the nature of what was taught at the university or the changes to what the buildings were called. As the fees misfall name suggests, they started around fees and what the protesters were seeking was free tertiary education. Now, I think that there was something to their claim because although there is provision for the poorest of the poor to receive funding for university, there was this missing middle, as it were, that they required uh, support that they weren't getting in order to be able to afford universities. So it's not that there were no grounds for complaint, but the question is to whom do you direct this complaint and against whom do you protest? And this was not a problem purely of UCT's making or of individual universities making. This was a problem that in some way was uh, the responsibility of the state. And so where the protesters were directing their, their criminal protests were against these sort of soft targets, which are the, which are the universities rather than the state. Now, of course, in a democratic state, there are mechanisms for bringing your concerns to the attention of government and bringing about change. And we no longer are in a period of apartheid. Everybody in South Africa can, can vote and everybody has, well, not everybody, but many people have been voting. And the majority of people have been consistently been voting for an ANC government uh, since uh, the first democratic elections. Now, I think what you need to do if you don't like what your government is doing is vote for another one that will do more what you like. Uh, th that's the democratic means. And if you want to protest in other ways in order to convey the depth of your feeling, then you can do that. But the moment you start violating the rights of others, then you've gone too far. Now. There are many people who have criticized me for taking this lie, who say that, well, students are justified in taking the law into their own hands and in acting illegally. But the question is, are they willing to extend that principle consistently to others? I mean, if I'm dissatisfied in some way, for example, and I'm extremely dissatisfied with what's going on in the country in all kinds of ways, may I resort to, uh, to illegality? And I think they would very rapidly rush to condemn me if I were to do that. And I would be brought to book. In fact, I've been brought to book for not breaking the law. I've been brought to book for calling for the upholding of the law. So there are no principles here. This is just complete expediency. It's raw, naked politics dressed up as principle. And I think it needs to be called out for what it is. I've got two questions. The one is just trying to defend the indefensible because I, I don't take the side of the fees must fall protesters, even though protesters is probably not the right word to use. But the first question is, is there not some principled way that one could defend this? So suppose the view is that universal education is in some form a right. And the fact that it isn't being paid for means that that right is being undermined. They are fighting for a right, which should be implemented. And the fact that it isn't is unjust. Then your response is, well, is it okay for me to take up arms and fight for other rights that aren't implemented? And then they suppose they say to you, yes, that's okay. You can do so. You can fight for rights that are owed to you that aren't being implemented. And suppose that's the line. So that's the first question I have. The second question I have is, do you think it is the case that a university education or a tertiary education should be provided by the state? Let me deal with the general point first. So there's something odd about violating the rights of others in the defense of your own rights. It, it suggests you aren't that concerned about con the concept of rights and people's rights in general. It looks like a self-serving activity. If, if you prepare to tread all over the rights of others in order to advance your own. 
But then there's the underlying question about whether there is a right to tertiary education. And of course, that could be understood as a negative right or as a positive right. And I'm presuming your understanding is a positive right, that there's a right to have it provided for you uh, without charge if necessary. And Mark will be able to speak more competently and authoritatively about the, the legal aspects. But my understanding of the positive rights, at least in the South African constitution, is that they need to be progressively fulfilled. It's not that you uh, have com a complete claim. So if you think about scarce healthcare resources, a, a famous case in South Africa was Mr. Subramani who sued because he was not put uh, on dialysis when he needed dialysis in order to, um, to live. So this is a, a positive right to life that he was seeking to have defended by the courts. And the courts in that case said, uh, no, the policy for allocating the scarce resource is reasonable then uh, you do not currently have an absolute claim to the dialysis if the resources are just too limited to provide that. And South Africa is a very resource-constrained co society. Uh, it's not clear that we can provide free tertiary education for everybody. And in any event, free tertiary education uh, might have certain unfairnesses built into it because if it were free for everybody, it would also be free for the richest people. So now taxes that everybody is paying through things like VAT and income tax, if, you, if they people are employed, will now be subsidizing the richest people. That seems unfair. And even among uh, the poorer people who get into university, they're already much, much more privileged than many, many other people and the majority of other people in South Africa. And so they now going to be the beneficiaries of uh, the state largesse at the expense of people who are much worse off in society. So I think there are very serious discussions and debates to be had about this, and you can't do this at the end of a torch. Also strikes me that when we use rights language, this is an equivocation that goes on. So the one side says, well, our rights have been violated. And by that, we see that right as the right to lots of free things. And because that right has been violated, we can violate your rights because there's some parity. And you sort of saw the same thing with regards to the use of violence. So students would say, well, the language that you've used is violent. Um, or your presence as a white person on an African uh, continent is violent. And therefore, it's perfectly fine for us to use violence in response. We can burn things down. We can destroy your property. We can drive you to suicide because we're meeting violence with violence. And what you had was this equivocation with regards to the meaning of words with really awful, awful sequelae from that. Indeed. And I don't think that this is just a local problem. We're seeing this in many places around the world where something is described as violence and it isn't in certainly in any literal sense. If it's violence of any kind, it is entirely metaphorical. And there's also an exaggerated use of the word violence in those kinds of contexts. And then there's an equivalence drawn between that and actual violence. And uh, this is just a recipe for disaster in addition to, of course, being utterly confused or dishonest. Can you speak a bit more about the violence that occurred on campus and off campus as a result of the riots? Yes. Well, uh, first of all, there was destruction of property in various ways. So things like paintings being burnt, buses being burnt, other vehicles being burnt, the vice chancellor's office was burnt. And then there was the strewing of excrement started of course, with the statue of Cecil John Rhodes, but then it, it moved to various university buildings and people had to now exit the buildings, trying to avoid this. There was one pregnant woman that we carried across this and she was sort of retching in the process. So there were things of that kind. And uh, then there was a lot of intimidation. So threats of violence, people had to leave lecture theaters, 
both staff and students under the threat of violence. And then there were even instances where there was actual violence. The vice chancellor himself was punched by one of these criminal protesters. There was another case in which uh, one law student used a shambok to uh, knock the cell phone out of the hand of another one. There were cases, not all of them related, by the way, to the protests. One of the leaders of the protests was engaging in sort of freelance violence on the side where he was assaulting people and even assaulted somebody in a disciplinary hearing about his previous assaults. Uh, so this was the kind of climate that was, uh, that was operative. I mean, this is very hard to listen to for, I speak for both Mark and myself, perhaps for different reasons. What I care about is the quality of education and, and the way philosophy and other subjects are taught in a free way on campuses. And I think for Mark, he cares about that, but in addition, the importance of free speech and the ability to express yourself without threat of, of violence, if you don't express yourself in the way that students appreciate. Exactly. Exactly. And this, I think, is what has put a chill on campus. So there was silencing of people at that time, but it's not gone away since the protests have ended. There is a pervasive sense of fear. And now I think the fear is less of being the victim of a violent assault, but the fear is that you will be labeled as a racist if you're of, the, of a paler hue, uh, or you'll be labeled as a coconut or a sellout, there are a range of terms that are being used for people of a darker hue. And these are very, very damaging labels in our environment. And most people are just not willing to risk having that put on them. So in America, there's a very large conversation about cancel culture. And it seems that some people will say, Cancel culture is pervasive, that they live in a constant state of fear and there's certain things that are unutterable and that you could lose your job. And especially on campuses in America, there's certain things you just don't say or don't teach. And then you have others who say, it's totally not true. There is no such thing as cancel culture. And the people who claim to have been canceled uh, have actually done incredibly well for themselves and have gotten these wonderful media spotlights and are living the high life. Can you give us a sense of whether we have a cancel culture at UCT and, and how it actually operates? Well, it's hard to know because I think the prophylactic effect of the threats has been so great that most people have just not said the sorts of things that would get them canceled. But there have been some people and they have been canceled to varying degrees. Our problem is more upstream as it were. There are a few people who will make the mistake, and I'm using scare quotes now, of saying something that they ought not to say, and then they will meet with a, a backlash. But I think most of the problem is upstream because people are fearing that. Perhaps I should say something more about the people overseas who are alleged to have done very well. I think that this is a kind of insensitivity. I think it's easy to look at somebody from the outside and to say, well, you've got OBE or whatever the case may be. And uh, so you, you're doing fine, but that underestimates just how traumatic the pressures on campus can be, just how great the threats can be or how great the threats can be felt. And so it's very glib, I think, for people who've not been subjected to this to say, that's nothing. You seem to have done fine. From the outside, lots of people seem to have done fine. My view in general, and this doesn't just apply to universities, but my view in general is that when you look somebody in the eye, you don't know what they've gone through. You don't know what diseases they're battling, what family problems they've got, what financial problems they've got. 
And you can't judge those sorts of things by somebody's sex or somebody's purported race. These are individualized matters. And I, I actually believe that suffering is very widespread. I think everybody is battling something or something or another. I have enormous sympathy for that position as someone who was a lecturer at Wits University and faced tremendous hatred among students just because I was white and just because I was teaching certain subjects as a white male lecturer. And, and yeah, the personal toll was significant and I never lectured again after that course. I lectured for seven years and after that I was done. And it does take a serious toll and you faced it far worse than I did because you lectured for a lot longer, but I sympathize with that position. The response of course is, oh shame, you're, you're an oppressor who's been in a position of power for so long. So what if you've had to take a slap on the wrist? You deserved it anyway for, for being in this position of power and privilege. And this is just your comeuppance for being in that position. Well, that suggests that anybody who occupies some relative uh, position of power is uh, guilty in virtue of doing that. And of course, there are a whole array of power dynamics. So if you go to home affairs and you want your passport renewed, there's a sense in which the clock behind the desk has power over you. Now, do they deserve to suffer in virtue of that? If you go to the bank and need assistance from the bank manager, they've got power over you in some way. You go to the doctor and you need some assistance. There's a sense in which they've got power over you. So power differentials are built into the structure of, of life. And it's not the case. I think that every time somebody just has power, that they deserve something bad. Of course, if people abuse power, then they deserve to uh, be called to account for that. But it's easy to say somebody has abused power. It's quite another thing, quite another matter to, to demonstrate that they have. And the accusations are flying freely, but the substantiations for those are not. And in fact, very often the substantiations are mendacious. They're just blatant untruths that are told. I should also add that you, you've presented this in, terms, in racial terms, but I want to emphasize that the bullying that's going on on campus is and not racially restricted. It's not that so-called white people are always on the receiving end and black people are, are perpetrators. There are many people who are sort of ideologically pure, and I'm using the scare quotes again, uh, who have a paler skin color, uh, who are part of the bullying faction. And then there are people with a darker skin color who have been bullied awfully uh, or who are cowering in silence and in in making preparations for this book, I've interviewed a large number of people across campus, and I can tell you that this satisfaction is not uh, racially limited. That's nor is it limited on gender grounds. And I think that's the right answer. I think there's a, there's a, an addition to make to that, which is that I, I'm not sure it's clear that people who are in a position of supposed power as academics actually do have power. Um, if you look at the threat to their livelihoods and their jobs, um, being so near, if, if they say the wrong thing, take the wrong position, they can easily lose their jobs. And that's, that seems powerless. Exactly. I think there's a certain irony in being able to cancel somebody because you purport that they have power, but the very fact that you're able to cancel them to some other degree is an indication that they lack that power and you have it. Of course, it does depend on the success of the cancel or the degree of success of the cancel. So I wonder what effect this has on teaching philosophy. So if I think about the courses that you taught at, at UCT, they're contentious courses by nature. You know, you're dealing with moral philosophy. So, you know, there's the general ethics course and there's an applied ethics course, and you're trying to test people's intuitions out and, you know, giving kind of various thought experiments. And the idea is that people should feel quite uncomfortable while they're 
you know, change their minds back and forth on some of these topics. I, I, I did your courses about 20 years ago and it was unbelievable how you were able to have this public discussion with about 600 students who, uh, I think you knew almost all of them by name. It is an incredible ability to facilitate this discussion with differing views in a way where everyone felt comfortable to express the position and, and to find out whether it was the right position to have it interrogated, to wear an opinion like a hat, to take it on and off. How has that changed? Were you able to kind of keep up this open dialogue where you could have free discussion during this time? Not since 2050. It's clear that things have changed. And in fact, I'm no longer prepared to teach that large introductory course. I did that for about 20 years and I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed engaging the new students and interesting them in philosophy, but I'm not willing to do it. It's, it's, it just comes at too much personal risk. So I'm now restricting my teaching to more senior students. One of the things that you talk about in the book in quite a lot of detail is this hyper-racialization at the university. So one of the founding values in our constitution is this value of non-racialism, the idea that you judge people on the content of their character and not on the color of their skin. It's entrenched in the Freedom Charter, this major document of the African National Congress, and was virulently fighting against the racial apartheid South Africa where everyone was designated into these groups. And for some brief moment in time, it seemed like South Africa could go in that direction, that we could really address the wrongs of the past by looking at people who are disadvantaged, not by looking at the amount of melanin in their skin. Uh, I know that you are incredibly uncomfortable at using these racialized terms, uh, which I think is the right thing to do. In the book, you put them in inverted commas in our discussion now. You've talked about people with uh, paler hue or a darker hue because these terms black and white are really artificial terms in some ways terms that were invented by the National Party bureaucracy. Can you tell us about how this re-racialization has played out the GCT? Well, I think in a way it's a microcosm of the society at large and certainly of the national policies. One thing I do early in the book, I think it's in the preface, is I indicate that during apartheid, there was a call to act in post-apartheid ways and to think in post-apartheid ways. And one of the implications of that is that you wouldn't, insofar as you could, refer to people by racial categories. And the irony is that all these decades after the end of apartheid, those categories are used, being used every bit as much as they were in the apartheid era. Now, they're not being used in exactly the same ways. I'm not claiming that there is reverse discrimination and they are being utilized in, in many ways, including at uh, UCT and in other universities and organizations around the country where very strong racial preferences are being used. Now, I know that some of your audience is not South African. Some of it is in the US and elsewhere. And what they need to understand is that we're not talking about the sort of practices that happen in countries like that. The South African racial preferences or have been described as the most aggressive affirmative action policy in the world. There are naked quotas. There are disqualifications of people on the basis of their race. Part of the problem in South Africa is the people that you are favoring is actually a majority of the country. And I do believe that there's something very dangerous about putting weight on demographic features, because the more weight you put on the demographic feature, the less you're putting on other characteristics, such as ones that are essential to doing the job. Now you can get away with, with a certain amount of that, but if you do too much of it, and if your preferences are too strong, then things are going to begin, are going to, begin to break. 
And I believe we're seeing that in South Africa. The one example that I give is the case of ESCOM, the national uh, energy provider, which is literally falling apart. And uh, the power goes out in South Africa for hours on end. Now we can see the effects of that. It's much harder to sort of see the effects of substandard appointments in the humanities faculty. So that leads to a really important point, which is there's a categorization of academic staff on campus and preferential hiring based on affirmative action. But there's also what they call transformation of the syllabus as well. And so I can't speak for UCT, but at WITS, there's been a strong push and a successful push to transform the philosophers that are mentioned in courses. So particular works are included or excluded from courses um, based on which, which authors and what their races and uh, genders are who author those pieces, um, as well as topics for discussion. So for example, African philosophy is favored nowadays much more so than it was in the past. And it's not necessarily the case that African philosophy shouldn't be favored, but it's favored just in just because the authors are generally black. Do you support this kind of transformational push for the syllabus? Well, one of the problems with the word transformation is that those who advocate it almost never define it. So well, if they do define it, they don't define it with precision. So we don't know what does constitute transformation and what doesn't uh, constitute transformation. And the same, by the way, is true of words like decolonization. And I've repeatedly pushed and tried to get clarity of what people mean, but it's really just a kind of hurrah word that is hauled out when you want to make some change. And then you say, well, this is in the name of transformation. One of the things I've repeatedly pointed out is that not all transformations are good. So one way, let's say, to transform our society into a more equal society would be to reduce everybody's well-being to the level of the lowest common denominator. Well, that would be transformation and it would be greater equality, but it wouldn't be a better thing. So it's not enough to say that something is change. You have to say that it is change of the right kind and done by the right means as well, because not every means of attaining an end is going to, is going to be correct. Now the curriculum story, I think is a complicated one. And there are obviously oddities in who makes it into the curriculum, historic oddities. How does the philosopher sort of rise to prominence and how does their work make it into the curriculum? I think it's partly on merit. There's partly some philosophers are just going to rise, rise up. If you think about Immanuel Kant, for example, or David Hume, uh, these are people who are unlikely to have been ignored. So that's part of the story. But I would be very surprised if there were not other explanations for who, who rises up, as it were, above the, above the crowd and is taken more seriously. And I think we can see those in many parts of the world. I think people who, who are connected to better universities are going to have better opportunities and better networks. Uh, that's true globally, and it's also true on the continent. So I don't want to say there's nothing to the complaint, but at the same time, I think that if you try to self-consciously sort out the demographics, you may well do a, a lot of damage because there may be very good historical explanations for why there is a disproportionate number of philosophers that come from some groups or, or, or some group or another group. And so I think there is something dangerous and damaging about this ideological preconception that we need to have the right sort of demographic balance. The other thing I... I've said before, and I've said it in the book, is that I think part of the concern here arises from an inappropriate 
an inappropriate sense of vulnerability or, or weakness. So people say, well, do the authors that we're reading look like me? And if not, how can I relate to this? And how am I meant to take this seriously? And uh, there's a sort of arrogance on the flip side that if you think that some philosopher bears some superficial re resemblance to you, like the color of the skin or the gender, that somehow you've got some claim to fame on the basis of this. This is an absurd idea. I think the only person who can claim any credits for their, for their work is the person who does the work himself or herself or those who are facilitated in some way, but to to believe that you are somehow empowered or disempowered because you don't share these superficial characteristics strikes me as, as a very unfortunate idea indeed. What's interesting is if you look at the Freedom Charter, the idea was that all of the intellectual treasures of the world should be available to all South Africans, black and white. And that idea has been jettisoned in favor of this decolonization project where anything that's sort of connected with this idea of whiteness, which strikes me as a code word for white, not, not anything else, must be removed and that other things must be put in its place based, as you say, on melanin levels. Although I think that this is not always honestly believed by those who put forward the view. So I don't see many race nationalists calling for Thomas Sowell's work to be included in economic syllabuses, despite the fact that he's black. They don't like the nature of his ideas and so he'll be disregarded. Someone like Candace Owens or Condoleezza Rice were not celebrated as wonderful, strong black woman because they were conservatives in America. So there's a sense in which, you know, the, the racial politics game is, is played at some junctures, but really, as you say, it's, it's a matter of playing politics as opposed to playing principles. Exactly. I don't think, I don't think there's a real principled line here. What do you think about this idea that seems to be a presumption or an assumption running through all of this, which is that certain ideas have a color or a gender. So, uh, for example, libertarianism might be seen as a white idea or the fight for gun rights is a white idea or Aristotelian logic is white. Um, this is a view that's put forward by those who call for decolonization. I find the idea absurd, just absurd. I mean, first of all, there's a question about where ideas originate. And when we really investigate them, we find that there's a real mix. Everybody's learning on the backs of other people and developing ideas further. I'm a big believer in cultural appropriation in a certain sense. I mean, I don't think that we should appropriate the cultures of others in a way that deprives them of their cultures or of uh, their cultural riches. But if there's something to be learned from another culture, then I think, uh, or to be gained from another culture, then I think it's entirely appropriate for, for us to take that on board. It's not only Italians who should be allowed to eat pizza. It's not only Arabs who should be allowed to use Arabic numeral. It's a ridiculous idea to think that somehow because an idea originated in a particular place that no other human being is, is entitled to use it. Of course, it just depends on what you mean by place. I mean, all these ideas have originated on earth and we're all earthlings. So you're imputing a certain relevance to these boundaries that I think we ought not to, uh, we ought not to attribute. One of the, the lectures that was of huge significance while I was at UCT was the annual TB Davis lecture in support of academic freedom. And one of those lectures was, was canceled by Max Price. Can you tell us about that incident? Yes. Uh, the academic freedom committee had decided to invite 
Fleming Rose to deliver the annual TB Davy Memorial Lecture. This is a lecture named in memory of a principal and vice chancellor of the University of Cape Town who had battled apartheid in higher education when it was introduced by the nationalist government. And then he died and the students had established this annual lecture in his uh, memory. And throughout the apartheid period, various people were invited to speak and speak about the importance of academic freedom. Well, Fleming Rose, for those who don't know, was the cultural editor at the Ilans Posten magazine. And he'd been responsible for the publication of the Danish cartoons that had offended many people. And he'd become a free speech exponent. And he'd been invited on that basis because he was a well-reasoned free speech exponent. And we believe not a, not a hateful one in any way. There was no evidence that this was a person who was bearing prejudices towards uh, Muslims. If he had been such a person, he would not have been, in my view, the best person to invite for, uh, for the lecture. It's not that I think he ought to be silenced on those grounds, but it's not somebody I would have gone out of my way to nominate and have come give the lecture. So at some point, the university executive wanted this invitation rescinded and it tried to get the academic freedom committee to rescind its own invitation and the committee refused to do that and then the university executive took the decision itself to rescind the invitation so here we had this immense irony that the academic freedom lecture was being cancelled by the university administration now, this is a very notable instance of, of limiting freedom of expression and academic freedom. Uh, the academic freedom, of course, is not that of Fleming Rose, who is not an academic, but it was the academic freedom of those who had invited him to, uh, to come and speak. But there have, there have been many, many other examples of, of people's academic freedom being impinged in less explicit and uh, ironic ways. Now, there were various sagas that followed the disinvitation of, of Fleming Rose. The Academic Freedom Committee was coming to the end of its uh, term of office at around the time that it was offering protests to the university executive. And then a new committee was going to be installed. And this again is how politics works because there's a nomination process that comes from different quarters to populate the committee. And it's very possible in the back rooms to be manipulating things. And I suspect that that's exactly what went on because the committee that was then appointed was one that I anticipated would be a much tamer academic freedom committee, one that would not stand up to the university, but one that would serve the university's prejudices. And that is exactly what happened. The next few people that they invited were more enemies of academic freedom than its friends. There was a professor from Columbia University who was invited to speak, and his lecture was actually not on the topic of academic freedom at all. But he had a postscript to his lecture in which he defended the disinvitation of academic Rose. So here you've got a man giving an academic freedom lecture in which he's defending the, the silencing of somebody. And then the subsequent speaker was somebody who was very intemperate, who had offered some very hateful comments on, on Twitter. He himself had been a victim of academic freedom restrictions. He'd effectively lost his job. Uh, and I believe he was inappropriately treated in that way, but I don't think still he was the appropriate poster boy for academic freedom. He's not the person who I believe ought to be invited. And the, the title of his talk was The Inhumanity of Academic Freedom, which again gives you an indication of uh, where, what his stance was. So instead of sort of defending in much needed ways academic freedom, it was actually spoken against by the people who'd been invited to give that lecture. Why do you think academic freedom is important, um, especially given 
that it often, at least uh, the argument goes, is at odds with people's feelings. So the idea is, well, if this person stands up, that person, just the mere fact that they stand up and have a voice harms me in some way as some marginalized person who is supposedly targeted by that speaker, even if the speech that they're giving has nothing to do with the targeting of me. For example, uh, Peter Singer recently was almost canceled. His speech uh, was almost canceled. Why? Because in the 70s, he released articles on the, the euthanasia of infants that were born with severe um, disabilities. And people with disabilities today said that he couldn't speak five decades later because of those articles that he wrote in the 70s and some subsequent articles that he wrote since then. But the point is that they felt that just the mere fact that he had the ability to speak in a public forum harmed them in some way. And then the argument is, well, not, not the only argument, but one argument is freedom of speech is important and academic freedom is important. Why is it more important than those disabled students' feelings? I think there's an assumption underlying your question whereby you're equating academic freedom with freedom of expression, because the particular question seems more to have to do with freedom of expression than academic freedom. There is, of course, a relationship between academic freedom and freedom of expression, but I don't believe they're the same thing. However, given that I think your question is really about freedom of expression, I'm going to answer it under that framework. And what I would say is that if we were to use the principle that people have a right not to be offended, not to feel uncomfortable by what people are saying, well, then there are very many things, or perhaps almost nothing would be able to be said because there'll be somebody somewhere who is offended by, uh, by what's being said. Now, sometimes the response is to say, well, no, it's not... If anybody's offended, it's only if people from so-called disempowered categories are, are, the, are offended. But all this does is encourage people to represent themselves as people in a, an oppressed category uh, or as a spokesperson for the oppressed category. And of course, those assumptions are not always true. Sometimes people are, uh, are, are not spokespersons. They're not actually representing the, the views of others. And also given the complexities that we've already discussed about where the power dynamics are and how complicated they are. It's not always the case that the disempowered are wanting the empowered to be silenced. And in fact, precisely where they can silence the so-called empowered, the empowered are not empowered. Uh, but there, there, there are lots of other dangers to, to people being silenced on the basis of causing discomfort. We're not going to be able to have a lot of very important discussions. And, and that's going to be to the detriment of society and humanity. So one of the arguments raised by Max Price the time, if I remember, was that he said there were threats of violence from protesters if the, the lecture went ahead. And he said, therefore, the lecture amounts to the incitement of violence and therefore it is not protected under the, under the Constitution as a free speech right. And I remember you wrote a piece at the time where you described this as the assassin's veto and that there's a big difference between a speaker who calls on an audience to go and harm a vulnerable group versus a situation where you have someone saying, if you speak, I will assassinate you. And really we were in that, that latter case and that's not the kind of thing that people should cow towards. Let me clarify that that term assassin's veto is not my term, it's a well-known term. On the question of violence, I explicitly asked the executive at the Academic Freedom Committee meeting where they wanted to get us to disinvite freedom of uh, Fleming Rose. I asked them whether there were credible threats of violence. Had they, did they have 
information, credible information that there would be that, that there would be violence. And their answer was no. So they were not working on the basis of any kind of evidence of that kind. Now it might be said that the campus was in turmoil and so it was not unlikely that there could have been violence. But my view is that the protesters would have been completely disinterested in this question. They were not riled up by Fleming Rose and they were not riled up by the Mohammed cartoons. I, I just don't think that that would have happened. And if there were a real threat, then I think what you need to do is neutralize that threat so that you can go ahead. Otherwise you do have this assassin's veto where people are having to keep quiet because they're constantly under threat uh, of violence. So you've talked in quite a lot of detail about some of the criminal behavior from protesters. Were there any repercussions? What did the university do to, to meet out justice against these individuals? Nothing in the end that I'm aware of. Nothing in the end. There was, there were a lot of stops and starts to disciplinary hearings and, and to charges being laid and then withdrawn and interdicts uh, issued and then withdrawn. But I'm not aware of anybody really paying a price for their criminal activity. Certainly not one commensurate with, uh, with what they'd done. No clear message was sent that this kind of behavior would not be tolerated, which is exactly why it went on year after year after year and why we have the new climate that we do today. It seems that it's not something that just happened in UCT, it's spread to a number of universities in the country, but it also has spread abroad. In America, there were a wave of attacks on, on statues at, during the height of the pandemic. Uh, a lot of statues were taken down and this sort of seemed reminiscent of the Rosemus Fall movement. And it seems that South Africa in some ways is a canary in the coal mine, that we, we have things hit us first and then they, they go and hit the Western world later. I have a sense that there are causal processes going in both directions. Our fellow South Africans seem to be borrowing ideas from elsewhere in the world, not all of which translate that well into the South African context. So a lot of these woke ideas have been imported here. Uh, they have colonized local minds without any resistance or, or opposition. But then I also think it's true that there has been some causation in the, re in the reverse direction. Certainly the targeting of statues of Cecil John Rhodes started here and then moved elsewhere and then expanded out to the statues of other people as well. How, how do you think your, your book should be received by those abroad, academics that are in philosophy departments in the States or in the UK or Australia? Well, I hope that many people in those categories will read the book. One of the things that I'm interested in is accounts of how their experiences Different or similar to what has been experienced at UCT. It feels to me that UCT is a lot worse than anywhere else in the world. Well, anywhere else in the Anglophone world, put it this way. There's certainly a places where there's zero academic freedom, but in, in the Anglophone world, UCT looks a lot worse uh, than, than all those other universities. But I don't know to what extent that's because I simply know UCT very well, very intimately. I mean, you said that when you read the book, you were, you were learning about things that you were unaware of, details that you were unaware of. And that's because there's a measure of distance between you and the institution. And I can't discount the possibility that there are other universities that are every bit as bad as UCT in the Anglophone world, and I just don't know about it. So I'd be quite interested for people to read this book and draw comparisons. I've, I've had some feedback already. One colleague in the US said that the environment at their university was just mildly toxic 
that was heading in the direction of UCT, but at a much slower rate than a UCT is heading downwards. Uh, but that's one institution. I'd be interested to hear from a, a range of others. I do also want to just emphasize this point I made before, that as bad as UCT is, I'm fully aware that it could be worse. This is not North Korea. We have broader freedoms in our society. I'm not going to be arrested for saying what I've said for publishing this book. And so there's a lot to be said for the freedoms that we still have. And that applies in the country as a whole, and it also applies within the university. So I don't want to be, I don't want to be exaggerating and I don't want anybody to take me to be presenting a worse scenario and a worse description than is actually the case. But I think what is actually the case is bad enough. You mentioned that you, you didn't fear arrest, but I imagine writing a book about a university that you've been at for decades, where you, where you bring to light some really, truly horrendous things. We, we've touched on a few of them in this episode, but there is so much more detail in the book. I mean, there are things that I just found absolutely chilling. I, I made a passing comment about someone who was subjected through so much scrutiny from students that he was eventually driven to suicide. I mean, really the environment sounded toxic. How, how did you feel about publishing this book, given that you are at the university? Well, I obviously have my concerns. I don't want to say too much about it, but I, I, I do have concerns. I think there's serious grounds for concern and worry. But I do think it's very important that this story be told, that people be aware of it. And I would hope that the university and others would respond maturely. No, just I said hope, not expect. I hope that they would respond maturely and do what needs to be done to rectify the scenario. Rectify so that when I do the next truthful description, it won't be as horrific. Well, I must commend you for uh, a really just a incredibly enticing read and the bravery at which you've approached it. And I really think it comes out of a deep place of love and devotion to Africa's greatest university, that it's written from a place of saying, how do we save this excellent institution that has produced so many wonderful minds who've been disseminated across the world? And I think that is your motivation, which is to say, is there a way to try and save this? Even if you think that it's, it's become quite unlikely given how bad things have gone, I very much felt that impression that that's a large driving force for producing the book. If I didn't care, I wouldn't have written it, but I'm also not hopeful about the prospects. I think it would take a lot to turn this around. And I'm not sure that, uh, that there are those uh, motivations and that strength that is required.